Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. We are back as we enter into a new year. I am excited about my guest today. Uh, He is someone I had on my uh, Soul Talk podcast probably about a year ago. Uh, if you listen to his interview, you'll know who I'm about to introduce to you. It was really amazing. I've really enjoyed uh, many of his books. He's a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, the executive director of the Flow Research Collective, and is one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He's the author of actually two of my favorite books, Bold and Abundant. If you haven't read those books, check them out. Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire. These are These are like outrageous titles, by the way. I'm going to have to check in with him about how he comes up with these uh, crazy, amazing titles. And his new book, The Art of the Impossible. I should say The Art of Impossible. We're going to deep dive into that. Welcome to Soul Talk, Stephen Kotler. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're the third person in, in two days who told me that I should have a the in the title. Every break. <laughs> uh, yeah, my bad on that one. Let me fall on my sword right right off the, <laughs> off the bat. I didn't realize that everybody would want a the word. It, it, it just comes out naturally, you I know, mean, but it's all good. It's a, it's a great title. And, uh, uh, you know, I want to talk to you a bit about titles and writing because I, I just I'm looking at these titles. and I'm like, wow, these are as an author. I'm thinking these are incredible titles. So. Look, uh, it was great to have you on last time. Uh, the art of impossible, not the impossible, the art of impossible. Uh, what inspires, before we dive into that, like what inspires you, the creativity for you in terms of what's going to be your next book? You know, as an author myself, I mean, writing books, ugh, it's like pulling teeth. It's hard, man. Uh, it's a challenge for me coming up with a book title. And so what inspires you? What uh, where do you find your inspiration and what was the inspiration for the art of impossible? So it's a great question. Um, I've written, I think, uh, 13 books. Um, so, uh, what if, if you, but if you want one frame and you asked a great question for this particular conversation. So I have spent most of my career, 30 years or so studying those moments in time when the impossible became possible. And I've done this in pretty much every domain you can imagine. So this could be, Athletic impossibles, the four-minute mile. This could be cultural impossibles. Rosa Parks sitting at the front of the bus. This could be intellectual impossibles, Einstein's theory of relativity, right? And I've, I've looked at this over and over and over again. And whenever you see the impossible become possible, this is the answer to your question, you essentially see two things. You see people figuring out how to harness and leverage disruptive accelerating technology. And then you see people marrying that with ways to extend human capability. And the impossible, whenever we see this, we're seeing, you're usually seeing an intersection of the two, one way or the other. And so I've written six books on technology. 
and I've written six books on human performance. I also am a huge uh, deep environmentalist and have done this for a long time. And a lot of my technology work, the stuff that, you know, a lot of those books have been written with my partner, Peter Diamandis. I handle the neuroscience, psychology, and anything environmental, agriculture, any of that stuff is that's total like that's the work I do in the world. And he takes point on the other stuff because that's sort of the work he does in the world. And we meet in the middle and, and write these books. So I've wrote one book about the relationship between humans and animals and um, sort of tied environmental themes into the rest of the book. So the environment stuff is sort of like the, the, the weird thing in the mix for people because it doesn't fit as neatly. But like the most interesting and possible challenge to me, and one of the reasons I think I've been writing all this book, these books is trying to save the planet. Climate change, species die off, those kinds of gl grand global challenges um, are really important to me. And, um, you know, I think I've been working on the front lines on for almost my entire adult life. And so that's the odd man out. But yeah, amazing. amazing. The fa and faster, by the way, you asked, or excuse me, faster, the art of impossible, the newest book, you asked what's different here. Yeah. So this is, so I did two things that I've never done before. First of all, this is the first how to book I've ever written. Right. Awesome. That's so it's a, it, the subtitle is a peak performance primer. It is literally a practical playbook for peak performance. And what, this book is, is it's everything I have learned about how to extend human capability. It's 30 years of research in one. And, and what I mean by what we've learned over the past 30 years about human, first of all, we've learned that humans are capable of so much more than we know, right? Like that we've learned this over and over again, but it's been really clear over the last 30 or so years. And the neuroscience, why is this happening? How are we capable of this? What's going on in our brain? And how can we use this information so you and I can tackle these kind of challenges, right? This was a really weird idea. You know, it's taken a lot of time to decode and a lot of people have contributed. And we've, you've read all, like, there's books on focus. There's books on gratitude. There's books on mindfulness. There's even books on flow, right? Some of which I wrote, other people wrote, blah, 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 blah. We've heard about all the different components. Nobody said, hey, wait a minute, this is one system. We're biological creatures. All these things are actually parts of one system. And you can't really get to that through the psychology. The psychology, most of the psychological terms are, are metaphors for neurobiological processes. Mm -hmm. So trying to sort of put this together from the psychological perspective, you can only go so far. And the science and the work I do at the Flow Research Collective, which is studying the neurobiology of peak performance, over the past 30 years has accelerated massively, so we now have a look at it. So The Art Impossible is literally a big think book in that it's a book about, hey, wait a minute, not only are we capable of more than we know, it appears the science shows that humans are actually wired for these kinds of really high, hard challenges. Wow. Taking it one step further, it seems that going big, and I'll elaborate on this because it's just a tantalizing statement, but not going big is bad for us. The whoa, system whoa, whoa. is designed. Not, 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 not going, going, not going is big bad, is bad for us. Okay, so let me, let, let me put it to you. Let me break explain, it down. Explain, yeah. break that down. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, let me tell you a couple things about what's in the book and what I mean by, hey, our biology is designed to work yeah. at a certain, like, what the hell do I mean by all that, yeah. right? So... The first thing you have to start with is the idea that if you're interested in human performance, you don't have a lot of levers to work with. Attention, okay. habits, a couple other things. These are like the basic building blocks of mm -hmm. everything we do. And attention is a really big deal. If you, the human brain is 2% of our body weight. It's very light. 
and yet it's at rest. So you're not even doing work. It's 25% of your energy. And most of what your brain is spending energy on is where do you put your attention and what do you ignore? That's the main thing we're doing. Every, everything you interact with, right? It's all about that. Peak performance has to start with your intrinsic motivators. The first, though, if you want to train, if you want to increase your performance in the world, you have to start where the biology starts and it starts with our own intrinsic motivators. Now, extrinsic motivators are things that are external to yourselves, money, sex, fame, that we try to go get in the world, right? But the research shows once safety and security needs are taken care of, you stop really wanting those things as badly. And then instead you turn to these internal motivators, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, the ability to steer your own ship and go where you want to do mastery, the willingness to get better at the things we do. Why do these intrinsic motivators matter so much? And why do, am I saying the peak performance conversation has to start there? One, when you have curiosity, you get focused for free. That's the big deal. All we do with our attention, all we do with our energy and performance is spend it on attention. So anytime, when I say peak performance is nothing more than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you or designed to work in a certain way, what I mean is that if you get it right, you get massive amounts of hard work done for a lot easier. So think about how hard it is to pay attention to something that bores you versus how easy it is to pay attention to something that you're curious with. Curiosity, neurochemically, is a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine. These are performance-enhancing focusing drugs. If I crank up curiosity and you find the intersection of multiple curiosities, that's passion. Neurobiologically, passion is just way more dopamine and norepinephrine. When I talk about romantic love, you've fallen in love, think about how much attention you're paying to the person you're falling in love with. That's all focused for free. You're not working to pay attention. Just you're true. just like, oh my God, I, I like, right? You're obsessed, right? You're obsessed, right? That's so, so when I say peak performance starts with curiosity, it's because you get a little bit of norepinephrine, you get a little bit of focus and free. If you learn how to turn that curiosity into passion, which is how it's designed to work, way more focus. If you can take that thing you're passionate about and attach it to something greater than yourself, something bigger than yourself, that has all kinds of additional peak performance benefits, but because other people are now involved, you get even more feel-good focusing neurochemicals, serotonin, oxytocin, norepinephrine, you feel even better, you pay even more attention, a bunch of other things happen when you add in purpose. And once you know what your purpose is, what do you want next? You know this, you want the freedom to pursue your damn purpose, right? Mm -hmm. This is every entrepreneur who's took a job somewhere and they developed a side hustle that they care about, right? And they're dying to like, oh my God, if I only had the free time to preserve, right? We've all met that person or been there ourselves. And once you have the autonomy to pursue your purpose, what do you need next? the skills, the mastery of the skills to pursue that purpose well. So that's how the stack works. At each wow. level of the stack, you get a little more neurochemistry and way more focus for free. Now yeah. here's where it gets really interesting. Just take it one more step. The part of my work is the state of consciousness known as flow. We talked about it a little bit last time we were together. It's a, the optimal state of consciousness, right? When we perform our best and we feel our best, it's those moments of rapt attention. You get so focused on what you're doing, everything else just vanishes, right? Time passes strangely. Five hours go by in like five minutes and your sense of self sort of disappears. And all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, sort of go through the roof. Flow is an enormous uptick in performance. Um, and what I mean by that is, for example, McKinsey, the business consultancy, spent 10 years walking around talking to top executives, saying, how much more productive are you in flow? And this is self-reported, so 
not the most ironclad data, but on average, after 10 years of talking to tons of CEOs, the average was 500% more productive. That means you go to work on Monday, spend it in a flow state, you take Tuesday through Friday off and you get as much done as everybody else. That's incredible. You see the same thing in learning, in creativity, in empathy, by the way, flow out, excellent choice, empathy, environmental awareness, and a whole bunch of other stuff. We can talk about why that is yeah. later. But for now, flow amplifies freaking everything you could possibly imagine. And all of these things, autonomy, mastery, purpose, all these things I'm talking about, they're what's known as flow triggers. Flow follows focus. It can only show up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So when you talk about flow triggers, what do they do? They drive attention to the present moment. How do they do that? They either produce norepinephrine or dopamine, the main two focusing chemicals, or they lower cognitive load, which is all the crap you're thinking about at any one time. If I turn that down, what happens? I liberate more energy for attention. This is why if your office is messy, you got a lot of work to do, you want to clean it first, it's because it's taking up RAM in your head, right? And when you just get that mess out of the way and you don't have to deal with it, it's easier to like, it's cognitive load, right? Yeah. So these triggers, they lower cognitive load or they increase focus and attention. Curiosity produces dopamine and norepinephrine. Passion produces more dopamine and norepinephrine. These are focusing chemicals, um, et cetera, et cetera. So much. For, for someone, with, and I want you to continue, but for someone, let's say, who says, Stephen, I have no freaking passion. I have no passion. I've just, I, like, I have, I'm not passionate about anything. What, yeah. Like, okay. Would, would, they, would, they, would they, would they, like, yeah, would they so let me, yeah. yeah. So let's, you point, this is the other thing about the book. The book is not just a big think book about these big things, ideas. It's also a practical how-to playbook. Uh -huh. You will go to, in fact, you can go, you can tell your listeners, if you go to www.passionrecipe.com, we've, we've taken, because everybody's asking this question. And the answer is, yeah, man, there's an entire system and it's free. Have it. Go to the passionrecipe.com. It's the first couple of chapters of the book, but we're giving it, I just want to give it away to people because so many people say this. And the one thing I want to say out loud to your listeners is one of the biggest problems people have with passion is when I, if I were to ask you to describe athletic passion, you're going to tell me about your version of like LeBron James in the NBA finals, windmill dunking over some dude's head with a scowl on his face. And you're going to be like, that's athletic passion. And I'm going to say, absolutely. That's what it looks like at the back end of athletic passion. But at the front end, it's a little kid in a driveway, shooting a basketball through a hoop over and over and over again. We forget that. Passion on the front end is very, very different from passion on the back end. And when we compare ourselves to where we want to be with where we are and how we're feeling about stuff, we're missing the point. The point is that the all peak performance, all this stuff, it always works like compound interest. A little bit better today, a little bit better tomorrow, a little bit better the day after, and then you start getting exponential results down the line. But you, you know, and let me also tell you, if your listeners are looking for a quick fix for passion, no, sorry, you know, that's not just how the biology works. Like I, you know, I'm going to swear and tell me if I, I swear <laughs> no, on your podcast. Be, be yourself. So half the time I give a speech, some dude stands up right afterwards, always a guy, and says, okay, okay, I hear you, man, but what are the three things I can do Monday morning? I hear that every speech, and I have a standard answer, which is, <laughs> fuck you. If you're, at, like, if you're asking that question, you have no interest in peak performance. You're lying to yourself. You're just uh, making it up. You want to short. I appreciate it. That's honest. Peak performance is 
It's actually, by the way, you go to the end of Art Impossible, there's a whole bunch of onboarding shit, like the passion mm -hmm. recipe and blah, blah, blah. It turns out what it really is, it's about six things to do every day and seven things you need to do sort of every week. And most of those six things are things that are either pretty quick or they fold into other things you were probably already doing. So there is actually a very workable sequence once you get through the passion recipe and some goal setting exercises and stuff like that. Then, there's, then there is, no, it's not three things to do Monday morning, but it is actually six if you do these other things and have done these things first. So it is, there's a manageable total system that anybody can deploy here um, according to the neuroscience so far. Maybe science discovers something tomorrow that I don't know about, but right now this is how far the science takes us. And um, so that there, there is a little bit of hope at the end of that tunnel. But the point is, you got to do those six things today. You got to do them yeah. tomorrow. You got to do them the day after. And it's every single day. Oh, and the more important point, and this is not, I wish I was the guy who said this, but <laughs> I work with a really brilliant neuroscientist named Dr. Andrew Uberman. He's out of Stanford. Mm -hmm. And Andrew recently said, he said to me, and this is the exact point. He's like, you know the difference between a peak performer and everybody else? And I said, no, what, what is it? He said, a peak performer always knows that it is always crawl, walk, run. There's no other order. Everybody else comes in and they don't want to crawl. They don't even want to walk. They're like, can I jog? I'm just going to start. I'm, gonna, I'm smart. Yeah. I'm going to figure out how do I come in and jog? Yeah. Peak performers get farther faster because not because we're better, not because we're smarter, not because it doesn't suck as much at the, for us mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. front end of a project. It's because mm -hmm. we don't look looking for shortcuts. We know there are no shortcuts when it comes to skills or knowledge or peak performance, any of those things that you want, it's crawl, walk, run. And when I say it's crawl, let's talk about learning for half a second. Learning is an invisible process. We are bad until we are better. Our mm -hmm. experience is I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. God, I suck. Well, maybe I don't <laughs> suck so much, uh, right? Like that's right, the experience. Right. But aren't, aren't there some people who, I mean, maybe some folks might say, but hey, look at LeBron. He was just maybe born that way. Jordan born that way. Kobe born. Aren't there some people, I mean, maybe it's a past life thing. Who the hell knows? But are there people that are just wired yeah, for that? So, so it's, it's interesting on that one. Um, what we know, and this is also in our impossible, there's, there's a whole section on learning and what we should learn and how we should, we should approach it. And in there, I, I talk about um, an idea that I think sports, sports writer David Epstein uh, made famous in his book, Range, which is known as match quality. And this mm -hmm. is the idea that if you really are looking for peak performance, and this is, by the way, the passion recipe, is essentially a program teaching you how to search for match quality. That's sort of what we're doing there. Um, and match quality means there is a perfect fit between who you are, your, your desires, and your values, right? Mm -hmm. So your strengths really like who you are as a person, where you want to go, and your values. And when you get match fit, you get massive accelerations in performance. LeBron, yes, the dude is a physically gifted man. And yes, Muggsy Boses of the world, 5'8", playing in the NBA, balling. Maybe this is, I'm too old and nobody remembers Muggsy. But like, he was the shortest dude I ever say, saw play professional <laughs> basketball at a high level. And um, my point is, he's an anomaly, but so is a guy like LeBron, right? They're both mm. outliers in a sense. But my, my point is, yeah, I don't know if I can help you become a professional basketball player if you're 5-1 <laughs> and uncoordinated. That is a lousy match fit. Sure. Then you're not using biology for yourself. Let me put this in a different way. 
one of the things that the Flow Research Collective, one of the things that the Art of Impossible is based on is this idea. So there's a real problem in peak performance, which is a lot of people, and you see this more in coaching and very much in the spiritual communities, people figure out what works for them, and then they try to teach it to you. Mm. And I always say, if I was doing that, if I was that dumb and arrogant, really, to do that, I would... I get into flow best when I'm alone skiing through the trees, usually about 50 miles an hour with the Wu-Tang Clan blasting, <laughs> right? That's how I, that's what really works for me for flow. You will never see me on a stage said, okay, people, now I got to introduce you to Wu-Tang. Oh, and you have to learn how to ski, by the way. Hell no, uh, it's too cold. You know what I mean? My, so my point is by personality doesn't scale. And this is really key. The reason it doesn't scale is there are foundational things in peak performance like where you are on the introversion to extroversion scale or what are your risk tolerances? These are genetically hardwired often or set up by early childhood experience, meaning you can change them, but after the age 10 or 11, it's slow progress over time. You can't do it very quickly and you can't fight that, right? Like you can used to believe that we had these like where you are introversion to extroversion was locked in, fixed at birth. And we now know, no, if you really work on, if you're introverted and you really work on, I did this, I'm an extreme introvert. I will spend 14, 15 hours a day alone wow. and I will do it for months on end and you're seeing me and I'm good here. And wow. I'm good on a lot of stages and I'm good in public. It's because I've been on stage all the time since I was very young. I hated it. To do what I wanted to do in the world, I had to get better at it. And I so I practiced, and you're literally looking at 40 years of practicing on this stuff. Mm -hmm. I started, I was the first time I was in front of people, I was 11 years old or 10 years old. So mm -hmm. I've got a, I've literally got. Can, can I just ask, just a side note, but what, what, why 11? Because I was on stage at age eight. So I'm very curious now. <laughs> I was a magician. Oh. So I started when I was 11 years old, I got a job at a restaurant. There was a magician in town who was doing all the birthday parties every weekend, and he was going to college. And he, I was the only other dude he knew, other magician he knew. And so he gave me the job. And I was 11. And I didn't, at the time, I was good. I mean, I was a talented magician at 11 because uh, uh, I was just devoted to it. I loved it. So, But I didn't realize how freaky that was. You know, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, my God. They gave you it. They let you go into like a restaurant and do like twice a week. It was a crazy, it was yeah. a crazy fun thing. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, I started like and I, and I was never comfortable even then. Like I loved doing magic. I hated performing. I liked getting paid. Right. So it was a motivator to learn how to perform and get over myself. But I never it's never been super comfortable for me. Um, so I've just gone at it for a very long time. But so that's like you can change it. But like you got to really you got to be willing yeah. and motivated. And I had to make a living, right? Like be, yeah. feeding yourself is a great motivator for learning how to like do something hard. <laughs> so you said there were six things to do every day. Could you? I, let's okay. So that's a, I cannot do that quickly for you. Yeah. Let me, Maybe let, let, me, yeah, let me poke at some of it. Yeah. Um, let me talk about. Cause you got me curious about. Yeah, that. no, no. So let's talk about, what we what what I would call the positive psychology basics. Mm -hmm. So um, positive psychology for about the past 30 years has really been studying like, how do we move people like north to happy? Like we can take broken back to normal, but like, how do you get normal? You know, and they're just really like, I, my interest is normal up to Superman or Superwoman. That's where I'm going. 
they've just been trying to get people like unbroken to like, I'm not miserable, right? Like a little happy, maybe hopeful, get through the day, right? And this is, I mean, we laugh, but like anxiety and depression are at epic proportion. I mean, no, we've never seen anything like that. The most recent Gallup worker, sur- I remember when the first Gallup engaged, worker engagement survey came out a bunch of years ago and they found that American worker disengagement was at 71%. And I went, oh my God, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. That means that like almost two out of three of us hate what we do for, for a living. And wow. then five years ago, it's up to 80%. Wow. The other, but the, wait, the other 20% have jobs that produce flow. And they love what they're doing and they can't wait to get to work. And like, we know what the cure is. We know what the problems are, but like 80%, that mean that means four out of five of us hate what we do with our time. Like, does that even make, like, what is that? Like, like, isn't that like, should we rebel or something? I mean, I like, that seems like a lot of misery um, is my point. Um, so the numbers are even, they're sort of going up and up. And so there's huge costs, by the way, to getting all this stuff wrong. But anyways, positive psychology has been working on this stuff and they've learned the six things. There's three things that you have to focus on. Now, this part is we've added to it because we looked at the neurobiology underneath it. So there's three things that appear you have to focus on on the energy side of the equation. I have enough physical energy to perform at my best. And then there's three things on the cognitive side of the equation. And on the cognitive side, let me explain that for reasons that are complicated but obvious, too much anxiety, too much fear, fucks up peak performance, right? Absolutely blocks it. Blocks flow, blocks it focus, blocks attention, blocks creativity. The more anxiety in your system, the more logical and linear you get, right? The extreme example is fight or flight, right? When you're confronted with a really complicated challenge, the brain wants to make things simple. It doesn't want you thinking about options. It's okay, you got two. You can fight or you can flee, right? Little bit more anxiety than a crisis situation. Still, the brain doesn't give you the full suite. That's why in the book we talk about being in a good mood is one of the best hacks for creativity, and it's because of this mechanism. Literally, too much of the neurochemicals that underpin fear, and you get logical and linear, non-creative, I need a solution, I need it right now, you gotta save my life kind of stuff. This is not the time to remember that, oh, that looks a little bit like this thing from way back then, and didn't John say, and let me ask Susie, right? You, you, you'll die, right? Tiger's coming out of the bush, fight or flee. It's not solve this problem in a unique, creative way. Mm-hmm. That, that system is still in us, right? So anxiety is usually blocking. So there's three things for cognitive management. On the uh, So long answer to a question now, we'll give you a shorter answer. What do you have to do every day for energy? You have to sleep seven, eight hours. There's no, like, it's just what it is. Like you can, they, you can get jiggy, you can measure your sleep, you can track heart rate variability, you can do all that stuff. I was just talking to, we did a podcast uh, the Flurry Research Collective with Andy Voxel from Harvard, one of the one of the better sleep researchers out there. We were talking about this. We were laughing. She's like, "Yeah, nobody wants to say because you can't build an app for it or make a living off of it or whatever." But like, sleep seven eight hours a night. That's it's sort of a deal breaker. And if you actually knew the cognitive, mental health health detriments for sleeping less, you would never ever not sleep seven, eight hours a it night. Seems, but it seems like there are some peak performers that like pride themselves let, on. Okay. Yes. So, so let me get to the rest of, let me get to the rest okay. of it and you'll understand. There is also on the physical side, the obvious one, nutrition, 
hydration, right? Drink lots of water, eat good food. There's no one diet, apparently, the science for any one people. Like, no, keto for you maybe, but not for all of us, right? Vegetarianism for you, but possibly not for all of us unless mm. we're making environmental decisions, right? Like, yeah. but diet-wise, there is there doesn't appear to be anything. But lots of water, lots of good food because you need energy. Here's the interesting one. Social support is the third one. It's on the physical side. So we know this. Chris Peterson, brilliant positive psychologist at the University of Michigan, says you can sum up 30 years of psychology in one phrase, which is other people matter. We're social beings. And if we don't have contact with loving, supportive people who care about us, or even just going out into the world and talking to a stranger for that matter, um, think bad things happen. And why it's on the energy side of the equation is something that most people don't realize. But every time you face a challenge, any challenge, right? It could be writing an email that you don't want to write. It could, I mean, it, or it could be something Herculean like climbing a mountain, take your pick. Your brain comes in and makes a safety or security calculation. It says, how risky is this challenge, right? How much energy do I need to provide you with to go after this challenge? It happens in milliseconds, but when the, the brain is assessing safety of a situation, it asks a very simple question. You got posse, are you solo? You got posse, you're safer. You're solo, not so safe, right? So if you're solo, you haven't had social support, you're not nurturing your relationships, you're fighting with your girlfriend or boyfriend or wife or boss or brother, or you're just bitching, being bitchy to the bus driver who took you to work. You know what I mean? You're doing, you're, you're not, no emotional intelligence, bad social management. Think about how low your energy is when you get in a fight with your mom. Right. Like try to get in a fight with your girlfriend or boyfriend and then go to work and focus the next day. It's almost impossible. And you don't have any energy and you're exhausted. Bad social support has a physical cost. So to your question, what we normally tell people to do is as a general rule, it appears like you can sort of screw one of these up a day. Under like normal conditions. I mean, it's sort of bad to do seven days in a row. Right. But it does seem like, you know, yeah, I got five hours of sleep last night, but my fucking hydration nutrition is dialed. And I had a great conversation with my wife before I came to work. And I feel really right. You can get away with it. Not advisable for long term, but like if you're trying to cut quarters, it appears like one a day you can Mm -hmm. sort of get away with it. But, 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 but only if we're not in crisis. So if you're an American, you've just lived through a Trump election. For a long period of time, if you're wherever you are on the political spectrum, like it doesn't matter. Like I don't care. You just went through a turbulent election and a co and COVID, and the economy is wobbly. Like these are crisis situations, so you can't screw around. Mm. Don't screw around. You got to do all three of these things every day. Now, have I? That's one of the six things: is sleep seven to eight hours a night, right? Hydration, nutrition, social support isn't on the list. The social support is actually built onto the list. I believe though you have to run the experiment for yourself. But I found for me, if I have two really great, meaningful conversations for a couple hours a week, like one usually has to be with my wife, like where we really reconnect, and then one with a friend. And it's I, like, I can function for a while. I probably need a little bit more than that, but that's sort of like my minimum. Like if I'm, like, what do I need? I need a couple of like two, two, three hour conversations just to make me feel like, oh, I'm a human being on this planet and you know, people yeah. love me and I love people and I, you know what I mean, just the simple shit. So that's the first three on the physical side. On the mental side, here we add a couple more things in. So one, 
you can you a gratitude practice and here's mm. why so people think of gratitude as a new agey spiritual thing and maybe it is but mm. here's why it matters from a peak performance cognitive perspective you have what psychologists like to call a negativity bias you and what this means is the brain takes in a massive amount of information every second and it's always sifting and sorting it's way too much for process and it's what thins things down with two main filters. What are your fears and what are your goals? And mm -hmm. fears are actually in the order of the, the neurological processes. Fears come first most of the time. Certain big goals will get through first, but usually our fears come through first. It's the first filter that hits it. Under normal conditions, we will take in nine negative bits of information for every positive bit that comes through. So you live in a world that is roughly nine to one positive to negative. So we know certain things. Optimism is really important for peak performance, not false optimism, but like a certain level of optimism is important. Being in a good mood is important for peak performance because for reasons we just talked about, a couple other things like that, the na your natural negativity bias will work against you. A gratitude practice, unlike affirmations, affirmations don't work. They're actually demotivating. And the reason is really simple. If you look in the mirror and say, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, and you work at Walmart, you got a built-in bullshit detector and your brand goes, fuck you, you work at Walmart, brah, <laughs> right? Right? Um, and you're lying and that's demotivating. Literally, like it's right. depressing for us. It takes energy out of our system. Gratitude is I wake up and I, and I say, I am so grateful that my legs and my arms work today and that I could get up and make coffee because I love coffee. Whatever, my brain goes, your brain goes, oh, shit, that's real. That happened, right? It's and that was added. a good thing, right? Yeah. And thank you. And you do with that, literally the research, and this was research, uh, one of our cohorts, uh, the, one of the world's leaders on gratitude is Glenn, Dr. Glenn Fox is a neuroscientist at USC. We work with him studying gratitude and flow. And uh, two weeks of daily gratitude practice is enough to start tilting that. And it wow. really calms you down. And gratitude, this is a five-minute practice. You either write three things you're grateful for and turn one into a paragraph or you write 10 things that you're grateful for and just try to really feel that, right? You want the kinesthetic address, the somatic address. It's not just like, oh, I'm really grateful that my wife cooked me breakfast. I got to stop and go, wow, she saved me a half an hour today and my schedule is really crunched and she didn't have to do that and she's busy and well, thank you, right? You got to feel it and mean it. But your brain goes, oh, look, your wife took care of you. I guess you're a little safer than you thought you were. So let me give you. A, and here's the secret. If you're interested in creativity, novelty, novel information is the building block of all creativity. So the more novel information the brain can take in, the better, the more creativity. And I'm not talking about like artistic creativity. I'm talking about creative problem solving, creative decision making, the day to day, how we live our lives, creativity that really matters. Um, and I'm talking about art and dance and all that other stuff as well. But um, so you want when your brain is taking in all this negative stuff, it's not noticing the novel stuff because there's too much negative coming through. Yeah. So, again, a good mood is a, dance, a break on creativity. That's sort of why, again. So gratitude is a great like it fixes your brain. It's five minutes a day. And maybe you're not interested in gratitude. You have other options. Option two, mindfulness. Mm. We've all heard about mindfulness. We've read about it. Why does mindfulness matter? There's advanced mindfulness practices, but in general rule, it's just it's stress reduction and a little more focus. You can get stress reduction, a little more focus, enough to manage your state for peak performance. 
with as little as 11 minutes a day. So you got a five minute gratitude practice or an 11 minute mindfulness practice. That's the second thing. Um, you can get you can get a lot of different results from longer mindfulness sessions, a bunch of other stuff. Remember, we're just talking about what's the minimum you need to do to keep your brain right to perform at your best. That's what we're talking about. The next, then, or you have one other option. Not interested in gratitude today. Not interested in mindfulness. Great. Twenty to forty minutes of hard exercise, exercising until it's quiet up here. Right? There's a technical term for that quietness. It's our exercise-induced transient hypofrontality. It basically means your brain's gotten quiet because it's using too much energy to do physical activities. So you're thinking less and your inner critic got a little quieter. But when that happens, when it gets quiet upstairs, there's a global release of your body of, of a chemical called nitric oxide and it flushes stress hormones out of your system. So it calms you the fuck down in the same way that a five-minute gratitude practice or a 11. So you have a choice here on the cognitive side. You should do one a day, a five minute gratitude practice, an 11 minute meditation or 20 to 40 minutes of physical exercise. If wow. you're in crisis two a day, right. or if you know me during COVID trying to keep my company afloat and write a book, I was doing all three and all three on the physical side. And I wasn't messing around because I yeah. didn't have a lot of wiggle room. I couldn't yeah. get it wrong. Right? Like a lot of people, work for me and I want them to have jobs and I had to navigate a company through a crisis. So I doubled down on all of it. But as a general rule, you said, what are the six things? Well, it's an option. So you yeah. mindfulness, right? So that's, that, that's why I mean, there's, there's no simple, easy way to answer the question because it's a bigger menu. But as you can see, this is workable. Yeah. I can do a five minute gratitude practice for 11. Like it's this doable. Is like, oh, wow. Okay. And it's also, I think it makes, I don't think people, cause you have a bunch of people who want to make a living off mindfulness. So they're trying to sell you mindfulness, hmm. right? Or a bunch of people who want to make a living off gratitude. So they're trying to sell you gratitude or exercise. Right. Hmm. And I don't begrudge people. It's hard to make a living, man. It's hard. Hmm. I get it. I don't begrudge people, um, their attempts to make a living, but it does make it feel overwhelming when you're just yeah. somebody who wants to perform at your best. And you're like, well, what the hell do I do next? And how, what are these things? How do they relate or what do they do? Or is there an option or, right? Like some days if you got like, I mean, if I just listen to the mindfulness guys, I would think, oh my God, every day you have to meditate. Some days my focus is so crappy. My head's all <laughs> over the place. Meditation is torture. Why would I want to reach for meditation in a day where like that when you know exercise is the thing to reach yeah, for, yeah. right? Like we have, we like the way it's being presented because nobody's saying, hey, this stuff works together and there's a system and there's a way to look at it. It's being presented as overwhelming. We're just like, oh my God, there's so much stuff to do and I don't know what to prioritize or what to do it when. And, mm -hmm. it, and nobody's not, trying to yeah, steer no, you I, wrong, right? It's just that we just recently figured this shit out. I love the way you're simplifying it and you just broken it down. And I'm looking at this, this these, the, these six things and I'm thinking, this is doable, you know? Totally doable. They're, they're yeah. kind of all doable in a day. It doesn't you seem- No, I mean, like I'll give you another one. Down. I'll give you another one. Um, I'll give you two more. I'll give you the big ones. Okay. What are the scary ones? Let's go for it. Okay. So flow follows focus. We already established flow is the state of peak performance. The, you want peak performance. The more time you spend in flow, better chance you're going to get, better chance you're going to have of taking on these giant impossibles, whatever they are. Flow follows focus. Complete concentration is the most foundational flow trigger there is. And so what does the research show? Research shows you need about 90 minutes a day of complete concentration for 
to maximize flow. We recommend people, unless you're a night owl, if you're a night owl, do this later. But if, unless you're a night owl, try to make it first thing in the morning. First mm -hmm. thing that you do. And we try, I try to go from bed to, to, to work with as little interruption as possible for a bunch of like a bunch of reasons. There's certain things you don't want to do. We'll get back to that in a second. But basically, and 90 minutes is not arbitrary. Everyone knows REM sleep, 90 minutes long, right? That's our dreaming cycle. Our waking cycle and our focus cycle is roughly the same. The human brain is designed to focus at about 90 minute periods. And what to do in that 90 minutes? Your hardest, most important task, right? We're, we could talk about goal setting and all that stuff, but like everybody has a bunch of shit they have to get done every day. What is your, and when I say hardest, most important task, it's the thing that if you get it done, it's the biggest win for the day. Like you're like, oh, I got through that. I won my day, all this other stuff, whatever. For me, it's, I got to write a thousand words in whatever book I'm writing, right? Like that's me. That's what I want to start my day with no matter what. For some people, you know, for my, my partner in the collective, he wants to, he has to do some strategy thinking for that 90 minutes and then he's going to go into a strategy call with the rest of my team, you know, the team, right? So that like, that kind of stuff, but do whatever, do your own hardest task in there. So there's the big ass 90 minutes a day, but I don't want you to do my stuff. I want you to do your stuff inside that 90 minutes. And let me give you one more on the daily list, five minutes for distraction management. End your day the night before. If you're going to start your day with 90 minutes of uninterrupted concentration, end your day by turning off anything that's going to get between you and that complete concentration. Don't try to fight against social media or your email in the morning. That's stupid. Those things are sticky. They've been designed to be sticky. They've been designed to pull you out of shit. Don't turn it off the night before. Go to your computer to do your work so you can't see your messages, so you can't see your emails, so you don't no, so you're right. Five minutes for distraction management to end your day. Start your day with 90 minutes of uninterrupted concentration. Some people, I like to do my gratitude list first. All right, I, that tends to be how I do it. Like I, I tend to finish my day by doing distraction management and then I write a to-do list for the next day, which is a clear goals list, another thing you have to do every day. So this is literally like, you gotta keep a goal list every day. You gotta practice distraction management. You gotta do gratitude, mindfulness, or exercise. You need 90 minutes for uninterrupted concentration. There's something else on the list that I forgot. Oh, and you gotta sleep seven to eight hours a night. And there's one other thing on this list that I have forgotten. Um, and I don't, literally, but literally that's about the daily list. We're designed to do this. It doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to be yeah. crazy. You don't have to go overboard for this stuff. Some of the stuff that you have to do every week is bigger and a little thicker. And yeah. I will say that also, but. I love the way you're just breaking it down. That, that it feels so doable. And I hope everyone listening in, uh, I'm taking lots of notes, but uh, the way Stephen's breaking it down is. Let me, let me, let me mention one final sort of thing about this. I, I, I know I've been blabbing a lot on this one. Um, but I just think it's really important for people to start understand this. Um, we at the collective don't tend to rely on technologies or substances. We like to avoid those. And the reason is I like to reach for psychological interventions for peak performance. And there's an upside and a downside. The upside, you know, if I was good, when I'm, when, when I'm in a dramatic mood, I, I always tell this story. I like, look, when I was a journalist on five separate occasions, I was shot at or had a gun pointed in my face. Hmm. 
at no point during those situations could I look at the person who was shooting at me and be like, excuse me, sir, would you put that AK-47 aside for a moment so I could use this technology and train my brainwaves into a peak performance state so I could dodge your bullets? Like That shit doesn't happen. Nor does it happen at work when the boss says, hey, hey, John, can you get in here? And I need you to do that presentation. You were supposed to do it Monday, but I need it now. And by the way, you're going to do it from my boss and her <laughs> boss and her boss. And the future of humanity depends upon it. So don't fuck it up. Right? Like, We've been in that situation. I'll give you another one that's even more frequent. Hey, honey, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> if there's at no point when you hear, hey, honey, can I talk to you for a minute? Can you be like, oh, shit, I got to take this substance. And it's like, <laughs> you hold on for like 10 minutes so the microdose kicks in and I can like get right for this conversation. You know, like that shit doesn't happen. Not in my life. I don't really think anybody else's life. <laughs> so I want stuff that is going to work. Right. No matter what in any situation and the problem that's the that's the good side so the stuff works the downside is shit ain't sexy doesn't do it you have doesn't to work it sound sexy at the water cooler probably not going to get you laid when you talk about it at the bar on friday night like it's none of those things yeah. right i just told you that the most important thing you could do for peak performance is spend 90 minutes start your day with a 90 oh, minute period of complete concentration and like one you're probably don't believe me. Read the book. Read all the science. Figure out why I said I made that statement. And then you'll probably believe me. But one, like, really? Seriously? Mm -hmm. Is question one. And two, it's just not sexy. Yes. Want, like, my life is so hard and complicated and difficult. I can't, I can't be fixed with 90 minutes of uninterrupted concert. <laughs> you don't understand the size of my problem. We're tripping I, on ourselves, man. I hear you. You know what I mean? But <laughs> like, the, the real truth of the matter is these are simple psychological yeah. interventions. Because that's how the biology is. You got to remember, we evolved millions of years ago, right? Mm. We're not leveraging stuff that shows up from the mod that was designed in the modern world that is all blinky, blinky, shiny, shiny, postmodern. We're designing, we're leveraging stuff that was designed when we were running, chasing down our prey with spears. And fire was a neat idea. You know, the, 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 you're triggering a bunch of questions, and, and I really, one's kind of connected to impossible, one's connected to motivation. Now, let me tackle the sort of motivation one first. I think a lot of people, you know, we're going through a challenging time. It's been a challenging year, COVID, okay. lockdown, quarantines. I'm listening to you like your the social support, and I'm like, for a lot of people, social support has been destroyed. Gone, and gone, gone yeah. and isolation. I'm like, shit, man, this is, this, is, this is intense. And I think there's a lot of folks that are feeling, well, kind of hopeless, the sense of like, will this ever end? Will we ever come out of lockdown? And, and, and so the sense of, to that person who might be feeling like this is never going to end, so how, I, what yeah. can you say to help them feel Honestly, so, so we, Here's the great news is I don't even have to talk too much because we just did it. So like the day of COVID, the day after COVID, um, flow especially is designed biologically for dealing with unpredictable crisis situations. So mm -hmm. like, it turns out that my work in the world is specifically has been, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. COVID happened and we happened, to, we're actually experts at this, go figure, right? Happened to a lot of people, right? I got a bunch of friends who were running AI companies and suddenly they're building cures for COVID. You know what I mean? They, they, did, they thought they were doing food science up till COVID and suddenly no, they're actually building vaccines, right? So we were sort of in, in a similar spot. We were like, oh wow, this stuff, we're designing it in one way, but it like, it's perfect for this kind of crisis. And what I told everybody is there's a couple things that are worth pointing out. One is uh, we told everybody the six things I just talked to you about 
do all six. Start yeah. there. The yeah. one next, the only other thing I told people to add in, and this is, by the way, this is, okay, this is the weekly, this is one of the weekly things that I, so everybody has what, what we term a primary flow activity and a secondary flow activity. And we don't have a, a ton of time to go into detail, but like, think about that thing you did as a kid where you just loved it and you couldn't stop doing it. Maybe it was singing hip hop. Maybe it was dancing. Maybe it was skiing. Maybe it was playing lacrosse. Maybe it was coding on your computer. Maybe it was writing comic books. Like whatever it is, we had it. We, and what happens in adulthood as responsibilities show up and as life happens is we tend to put that stuff aside, right? Like, you know, no, no, honey, you can't go surfing. You got to feed the kids, right? Like that's, that happens to all of us or no, no, you can't play your guitar or why are you wasting your time writing a short story when you could, all that stuff happens. It's called life. It's called responsibility. It's actually from a performance standpoint, a disaster and a couple of reasons. One flow is literally the very thing that makes us feel most alive, right? When psychologists define happiness, the upper two tiers of happiness have flow literally built into the psychological definition of them. The hap, the second, there's happiness. How do you feel right here, right now? Then there's enjoyment. That's a high flow lifestyle, right? And above that is meaning and purpose. And that's a high flow life will help you maximize all this stuff as well as a bonus. But flow, as I said, it the stress hormones flush out of your system. Everybody's overloaded. Everybody's totally burned out. Um, even better, flow boosts the immune system. There's all, all these neurochemicals I've been talking about. They're all immunological boosters as well. There's lots of science on this. I wrote about it in my book, West of Jesus. Um, but this is good. So in a time of like when we're facing a health challenge, right, you want to prop your immune system up as much as you can. So flow is really good medicine. But from a performance standpoint, flow is a focusing skill. So this is what most people don't know. And this is where we screw things up. If I get into flow while skiing, it's training my brain to get into flow while I'm running my company. It's right. right while I'm talking to my wife or what it take your pick. The more flow you get, the more flow you get. And even better, and this is not my work, it's Teresa Mahler's work at Harvard. Flow is a massive amplification and creativity, depending on whose numbers, it's four hundred to seven hundred percent. What Teresa discovered is that heightened creativity will outlast a flow state, which is usually about ninety minutes, a couple hours long. They're shorter, but it'll outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. So like literally you go surfing on Sunday for two hours, right? You're, you are bringing that heightened creativity and that heightened relaxation into work. So what I've been telling people during the, during COVID, during this incredible times of crisis, especially when social support is all screwed up, right? You're already operating a detriment because we can't do what we would normally do that way. So you got to get all the other stuff right and reboot your primary flow activity. Whatever it is, if like you grew up and you like dancing to hip hop, fucking put on the Wu-Tang line in your office and dance around for five minutes. Literally, right. Like, right. Really, really, really matters, um, especially in these times of crisis. And that's the that's the prescription where we start. And let me mention one other thing, because most people don't understand this as well. The bigger reason is this stuff is going to end. And you're going to ready, like, let's say you've not only had so, a difficult social year, most of us had difficult economic years, right? And once we start going back to work post lockdown, like 
everybody wants to hit the ground running more than anything. Oh my God, I got to like I, 2021. I better figure out how to do better than I did in 2020. Right. Everybody's in the same boat. We're all feeling that everything we've been dealing with in COVID the burnout is a very, very real psychological phenomenon. It's devastating. It's almost at an extreme form, like a form of mental illness in how bad it will impact cognition um, and how bad it will destroy your life um, and how bad it feels. But beyond that, everything we're dealing with is like, other than having a passive aggressive boss who keeps moving the goalposts, other than that, we are living the perfect conditions for burnout. Like on a daily basis, we are living through conditions designed to produce burnout. And if so, if you're not doing the six yeah. psychology basics and you're not getting regular flow, even if you manage to survive COVID, when you try to get back to work, you're going to be on the edge of burnout. How are you going to get up for the fight that is in front of you yeah. if you just got your ass kicked by the fight you're fighting now? Is mm -hmm. right. And we know how to win the fight. Like, can I fix the economy for you? I cannot. Right. Like I, there's a whole bunch of stuff. I, that are impossible. Like there's a little, some, some things are impossible. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's impossible because the book is about how nothing is impossible and like, but we're, it's not going to happen overnight in the book. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you get my point on all that stuff. Right. You, you, you know, you talk, the, the impossible. This is the question I had was like when we're setting goals or thinking about peak performance, you talked about go big, right. If it's good for you. Where's the line to yeah, know? Okay. Where, where so, it's delu okay, now I'm being delusional versus. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about this one. Um, let's start where we started. We did curiosity into passion, into purpose, into autonomy, into mastery. That's the stack, right? We, that's where we started. What do you need next? Mm -hmm. You need to. This is all about motivation. Motivation is what gets you into the game, right? Where do you need to go next? You need to know, well, where am I going? Right. I got all this energy. Where am I going? That's what goals are for. They're how you, they're, they're one way that you sort of set your chart, your course at the beginning. And what the research shows is you need three tiers of goal setting at the top. You need what Peter Diamandis and I termed in bold, a massively transformative purpose. You need a mission statement for your life. This is um, something that is very deeply aligned with your values Right. And um, and it can be go as you know, here you go big. Right. Here you go big. Right. Massively transformative purpose is what Peter and I were calling it in the book. And like we're not, you know, this is your end world hunger kind of thing. Like, where do I really? And this is, by the way, when you do the passion recipe, this is the purpose you're aiming for. Like, that's where you're going with this, this level of that goal setting. That's what you're that's sort of what you're aiming for. Then one level beneath that high hard goals this is where shit gets a little realer okay let's say my uh my one of my one of my mass by massively transformative purpose is to be the greatest author in the history of the world we write both write books right that's this my i want to be number one author ever in history right well my high hard goals are well i better write a book on cooking and i better write a book on neuroscience and i better write a book on jogging and i better want to write those are your high hard goals and i better go get a degree in writing or i and i better like learn how to write in this style or that's like those are high hard goals right the things that um can take two three four five years to achieve right that level of of goal setting and there is debate on this neck so some people say you need an interim step 
between high hard goals and the bottom of the rung, which are clear goals. So this is the last thing you have to do every day. We've actually covered all of it. You have to set a clear goals list. Clear goals are a flow trigger. And all a clear goal is, and by the way, when you say this to people, especially in the modern world, they hear goals mm-hmm. and they don't, that's where they focus. They go, oh, I had a goal. They don't hear clear. So a clear is actually what's important. A clear uh-huh. goal tells you where am I putting my attention now and where am I putting it next? So you don't have to wonder and you don't have to lose focus. It's a flow trigger because it lowers cognitive load, right? When you know what you're going to do with your day, you don't have to worry about it. So it lowers cognitive load and you know exactly where you're going. Even better, our brains are by design. I said earlier, reality is filtered by fears and goals. We are built to go after goals. So you want to give your brain an end, a destination. And what I mean by this is Gary Latham and John Locke were the pioneers of goal-setting theory. They discovered that simply setting a high, hard goal gives you an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. Mm. If an eight-hour day is your baseline, that's like getting two hours of work for free simply because you put a name around the work you were doing, right? That's all the goal is, right? Mm. Instead of doing all this work, I'm doing all this work because I want to write a book on cooking. That's, I mean, like you, right? You've just ordered it for your brain, but the brain loves to know where am I going? Gets there faster, a lot faster. The system is designed to work that way. So you need a clear goal list. And when I say clear goals, so a writer, I, my clear goal list says today I want to write a thousand words and when I'm done, I would like those words to make my reader feel excitement or joy or sadness or whatever. Right. That's a clear goal. I know this is, this is how I declare victory. Oh, I've got a thousand words and this is what it's going to produce. And the, you don't want outcome goals. It's not, I'm going to write the greatest thousand words in the history of the universe and people are going to weep for joy and dance in this. Right. No, that's stupid. That's something you can't control that happens later. I can control a thousand yeah. words a day. Yeah. I can control whether I write happy or sad words and what my reader is going to feel on the back end. Mm-hmm. Process. You're interested in did I do the thing, not what's it going to get me. If you fixate on outcome goals and, and like higher goals can be outcome goals, but even then I'm a little like be a little cautious, right? I never set an outcome goal of I want to like this book has to be the New York, number one New York Times bestseller. Like I, I will certainly work every one of my books. I do all the things I can to make that happen for my book. But mm-hmm. I know there's a million things. Peter and I launched, launched Futures Faster Than You Think, my our last book. On the day we were, I was literally, Peter and I, I think were the first people in America interviewed on television about COVID because we were launching faster. We were doing morning shows in New York like, Good morning, New York, 5 a.m. in the television studio and the news just comes out of China. Hey, there's this weird disease that we've never heard of before. Literally. So like we're like we're trying to launch a book and, you know, they want to know like Peter's a doctor. We're experts on exponential growth, which a virus is like I'm not talking about my book on television. I'm talking about a disease I know nothing about um, kind of thing. And so. I couldn't, if I would, if my goal would have been for faster to be a New York Times bestseller, I would have not, right? My goal was get faster into the world and give it everything I possibly can give it for a great launch. But what it does, not up to me, not my problem, Mm. right? Um, Wow. And I I live that way, by the way, just like, just, I think it's very useful. Like I always tell people, 
with books, you can always tell the difference between a real writer and a fake writer, which is a real writer finishes a book and they're already on to the next one and that's what they care about. A fake writer finishes a book and wants to know and cares about what people think of it. Once my editor is happy, once like my editor and like I've got the words the way I want them, my editor is happy. Um, my job is done. I will do all the marketing. I will do my job to get it into the world. But whether or not you like it, whether or not anybody like that's not people come up to me all the time. and like, dude, your book changed my life. And I'm like, no, it didn't. You changed my life. You changed your life. You changed your life. I yeah. like you. My book was a vehicle, but there were probably 20 other books that would have had a similar effect. And you found mine. And it's really nice of you to say, but like, you don't read my book. You read your book. You read your version of my book. I know that. Like William Gibson, my, one of my favorite novelists, has this funny quote where he says, I love going on a book tour because I run around the world. I talk to people and they tell me what I've been doing these past five years right? That's totally the experience of publishing a book, right? You have no idea what people are going to say. And it's never the stuff you think is important. Yeah. It's always the stuff that they find. And that's great. That's how it's supposed to work. But I don't, they're going to find it. I know how that, like, why would I even care? Why would I even take it personally? Like I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. This is my endpoint. This is my goal. That's a process thing. I can control that. All that other stuff. Sure. I want it. And it's nice. And it makes my life easier and all that stuff. But I've, had huge hits and I've had books that have come out when COVID happens, <laughs> right? Our marketing campaign. I had another, my book before faster got KO'd the entire marketing campaign because the publisher sent the books out three weeks late. Oh so my everybody, my entire PR <laughs> campaign was built on a very time thing. My, nobody got their books. So wow. like, Nobody was trying to do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. They were trying to get around a mailing problem. And you know what I mean? It just happens. And my point is like, if I hung up on, mm -hmm. is it going to be like, I'll get you in the long run. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Sooner or later, I'll get enough time. I'll get you to read the book and you'll like it. Mm -hmm. But like, I want like an outcome that I can sort of control, not one that somebody can take from me. So I, I think, think that's, I just, that's, that's a, definitely a, a freer space to come from, you know, for sure. Yeah. More, yeah. You know, you've, well, Stephen, you shared, you shared a lot. You, like, I feel like you packed in so much into a, a short period of time. So I want to thank you for your, your generosity. Uh, kind of final question. As we look into the world, depending on when people are listening to this conversation, give us some hope for the future. Like, what, what are you excited about? What are you hopeful of, even in the midst of COVID times and the challenges? Oh, I mean, first of all, I mean, I'm massively hopeful. I, so Faster is a book about exponentially accelerating technology and what it's going to do to the world. And that's the, you know, I always say whenever you see the impossible becomes possible, right? Like you mm. see people leverage disruptive technology and extend human capability. And when you get the two together, that, right, that's the impossible. So on the disruptive capability side, what you see, let's just take COVID, let's just take healthcare. So I, this is what I'm about to say is not to mitigate the fact that enormous amount of suffering is happening. Like this disease is horrible and it's just doing a lot of terrible things in the world. But from a technological perspective, this is not a problem we're going to have for much longer. And I know, and you're like, what? That sounds great, great. So health healthcare is about, healthcare is in the middle of the most radical revolution we've ever seen. And literally every step in the medical treatment train from diagnosis all the way through to the drugs we're building and creating in the end is being massively rediscovered. You saw, 
you're living through an example of this. So there are, by my most recent tracking, I could be wrong in this, but roughly 125 different cures and or vaccines that are in human trials. Um, oh. On average, by the way, historically, up till kind of this, it takes a minimum of roughly five to six years to get to a vaccine, and it, they usually cost billions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we've got 125 of them in less than a year is mm-hmm. nothing short. I mean, like, it's not just one would have been a miracle. Like, I don't even know what you call 125. We don't have a word for what that is. And the thing is, that's the end of the That's drug discovery and turning drugs into medicines. That's the back end of the medical treatment train. Mm-hmm. In the middle, surgical robots are take are, are revolutionize the world. And this year, so Verb Surgical, it's Google and Johnson & Johnson, they teamed up. We've had surgical robots. I had a hernia surgery done by the Da Vinci robot a couple of years ago, heart surgery. There's all kinds of, right, this is really common. It's more expensive. It's a little more first world right now. Verb Surgical was Google and Johnson Johnson saying, no, 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 we can democratize this shit. We can make it available to anyone anywhere in the world. And so that's the medical treatment train. The front end is diagnostics. There we've got you know, the Tricorder X Prize was just one. That's the that's a handheld device that can d- diagnose illness better than a board certified doctor. It's an iPhone. It connects to a diagnostic AI in the cloud. It got and this is by the way, you like you keep hearing people say, Hey, we're gonna turn your smartphone into a health adv- health device, and then your smartphone measures your steps and you're like, What the fuck? What are you talking about? Wait for the next generation and they're gonna start coming. I mean, the new Apple Watch, a great example. Like You've got medical grade um, EKG. You've got a bunch of that stuff built in. So those are getting better and better. So the point is, even to the point of, there's a guy, there's a bunch of companies that are building bio sniffers. So you can put one in Grand Central Station. You're you. Let's say you you're you're somewhere weird in the world. You pick up unknown virus X, and you walk through Grand Central Station past a bio sniffer. It sniffs the molecules in the air. As you pass, it detects a virus we've never seen before. It immediately uploads it to a diagnostic AI on the cloud that diagnoses what it is. This is, by the way, nothing I'm talking about is non-existent technology. Everything I'm talking about is here today, just not integrated in this way. Diagnoses it and then alerts AIs that we could have a virus problem and the AIs start building drugs for it before before anybody even knows we've got a problem. My point is that uh, there are, if it was aerosolized Ebola, not COVID, maybe what I'm about to say isn't true, but for a disease like COVID 10 to 15 years from now, this problem is gone. We may have other medical problems, but literally like this is really low hanging fruit. If you think um, artificial intelligence, which is what solved that is fast, quantum computing, which is already here, right? And like you can go to Rigetti.com right now and download an app called Forest. And it's a quantum developer's app. And it's an API for their quantum computer. It's online. Over a million and a half people have downloaded the app and run programs. So it's democratized. It's here. It's now. Quantum is great at drug discovery and like a million times faster than AI. So what was super fast with AI is about to get super, super fast. And my point is this kind of revolution is coming pretty much to every Right. Faster goes through the 11 largest industries on earth with healthcare being one of them and lays out, this is lays out what's going to happen over the next 10 years. And 
all the industries are going to be if, radically reinvented. If, if you were an entrepreneur, kind of mm. I keep saying final question, but if you were an entrepreneur looking at, wow, the future, would there, is there anything that, ex, that, that you see or excites you the most in terms of, wow, all right, uh, yeah, this is, going, I will, which business right, would you go into? Yeah, that, there's a great question. And what, what, so, but it, it's slightly the wrong question. Let me explain what I mean. Yeah. Um, I wish I had a fast answer, but it's a good question. So I'll give you a slightly longer one. Um, the, when you get, what's happening now is, what happened over the past 10, 10 years was like, we were seeing acceler, acceleration in the world based on single technologies accelerating along exponential growth curves, doubling in power on a regular basis. Our computers get twice as fast, mm -hmm. but the cost stays the same every year and a half. And that was happening in robotics and that was happening in artificial intelligence. It was happening in sensors, right? We've all seen this. This is our world over the past couple of decades. What's happening now is they're converging. So sensors are bashing into AI, bashing into robots. And what you get as a whole is much greater than some of its parts effect. And so huge scale and size and scale disruption goes up and up and up, which is why you can say, hey, man, healthcare is going to be completely reinvented over the next decade. Mm. My point, I, this, was, this was a very funny moment in my life. I was giving a speech for, the, uh, for NBC, all the top executives at NBC a couple years ago. And I, so there's a, at the Flow Research Collective where we study the neurobiology of peak performance. One of the guys on my board is Adam Ghazali. He's a, he's a neuroscientist at the University of San Francisco. Um, and he's brilliant. And he had a, a, the cover of Nature a couple of years ago, the big science publication, because he had invented a video game that treats cognitive decline in older adults. And not completely, but cognitive decline is basically like six different symptoms. And he his video game will treat three of them. And I mean, like really treat. And it was this year approved by the Federal Drug Administration. You can now go to a doctor as a 60 plus year old person and say, doc, I, I'm having trouble remembering things. And my and the doc will say, okay, I need you to go home and play this video game an hour a day, three times a week for six weeks. That's mm -hmm. a prescription. So when I was speaking to NBC, and this is the answer to your question, Five years from now, entertainment is no longer the field. Healthcare is no longer the field. Now the opportunity is at the intersection of entertainment and healthcare. In the future, converging exponentials lead to converging markets, right? If 10 years from now, do you want to play a video game or do you want to play a video game that makes you smarter? So, I mean, like, right? I mean, like, I'm going to play a game anyways. I want to play a video game. I don't care as long as it's fun, Yeah. right? I just want to play a fun video. Do you want to see a movie or do you want to see a movie that's going to blah, blah, blah? That's where it's going. And that's where all that seems to be. I mean, Faster really breaks it down. It's really a good manual and you should take a look at it. But the, the what is difficult about what's coming and where the amazing opportunities are is they're between things where before they were never stuff between those things, right? Like amazing. healthcare and entertainment, they're the same field. What? Yeah, yeah they're that now conversions. Amazing. Stephen, this has been an incredible interview. Um, I've taken so many notes, I'm going to digest. Uh, I haven't read Faster, but now I'm really, really inspired to go read it. You'll like Faster. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, by the way, if your favorite two books are A Bold and Abundance, Faster is the third in the trilogy, first of all, and it's the better book. I didn't. I don't think I knew how to write about science and technology in the way that I like. When I wrote Abundance, I was still like, 
I mean, I had been writing for a long time by then, but like, I think I was figuring shit out. Same thing with Bold. I think I finally like, Faster's, Faster's the first of those books where I'm like, yeah, this one I got to write. Amazing. I can't wait to read it. Uh, folks, the amazing Stephen Kotler, check out his new book, Art of Impossible, uh, on Amazon and bookstores, wherever you are. Uh, what's the best way people can find out about your work, Stephen? Yeah, you, so I'm in artofimpossible.com. How's that for easy? Um, but stephencotler.com is me. Um, if you're a Flow Research Collective, is is us and um one quick thing because you asked a question and we can just give this as a we gave people the passion recipe but if you go to um uh flow research collective forward slash flow blocker we built a diagnostic for there are six major causes of things that can stand between you and your flow it's a free that's free for any everybody as well so you have take-home gifts awesome Folks, we'll put all of the uh, the links that Stephen just shared in the show notes. I want to encourage you to check out Art of Impossible and and uh, Bold and Abundance and all of his other amazing books. Uh, I'm excited to dive back into Art of the Impossible myself. Uh, send me an email, everyone, kublaxon at kublaxon.com. I would love to know your key takeaways from today's episode of Soul Talk. And uh, do me a favor, write a review and share this episode with everyone in your life. Sending you much love, everybody. Stephen. Thank you so much. Good, thank you. Big hugs. Love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.